Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm Paula Thomas, the founder and CEO of Let's Talk Loyalty. Today's episode is hosted by Phil Rubin, the founder of Grayspace Matters, an innovation and growth advisory firm in the US focused on driving profitable growth. If you work in loyalty marketing, Make sure to join Let's Talk Loyalty every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday to hear the latest ideas from loyalty experts around the world. Just before we share today's episode, I want to ask you to sign up to the Let's Talk Loyalty email newsletter. Our email newsletter is by far the best way for us to keep you up to date with all of the latest incredible loyalty stories we're sharing each week. It's also the easiest place for you to find our show notes with links to everything mentioned in all of the episodes. You can sign up at letstalkloyalty.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Let's Talk Loyalty. I'm Phil Rubin, founder of Grayspace Matters and your host for today's podcast. Today's guest is Rory Sutherland, the vice chairman of Ogilvy Group in the UK and the founder of the behavioral science practice at Ogilvy. Rory's been with Ogilvy for 35 years, starting as a copywriter in the direct group and then as a creative director. In addition to his work at Ogilvy, Rory is a prolific writer and the author of several books, including the best-selling Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. He also writes the Wikiman column for The Spectator magazine, that column being named after his first book, and he's a sought-after speaker with a number of TED Talks to his credit. Rory is a true intellectual instigator, reflecting his unquenchable thirst for knowledge. He's both provocative and remarkably grounded with a large dose of humility. You'll realize this when you listen to him, read his writings, and at the same time, increase your own awareness of the value in thinking differently. Specific to loyalty in this podcast, it's worth noting that Rory is the featured keynote speaker at the Loyalty Summit CXM this month in Zurich, which will feature leading brands and attendees from Europe, North America, and the Middle East. With that introduction, let's get to talking with Rory and learning about the valuable differences between nonsense and nonsense, as well as logical and psychological. Rory Sutherland, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've, you've hit my hot topic. Well, same here. So, uh with that, let's get into it because we have so much to talk about and and as always, never enough time. So Rory, we always start with the same question and that is, what's your favorite loyalty program or should I say, what's your favorite loyalty scheme? I was thinking about this and actually I like lots of them. Um, some of them, by the way, which I admire, didn't work. I always thought there was a kind of brilliance uh, to um, the invention of the first American Airlines loyalty scheme, um, which uh, we ought to acknowledge uh, as the work of Bob Crandall, um, who uh, not only effectively pioneered computer booking, he pioneered the loyalty scheme. He also came up with some mad ideas which subsequently went wrong, one of which was a quarter of a million dollar ticket that entitled you to free first-class travel on American Airlines for life, uh, which was a brilliant scheme which became so badly abused by some participants that they effectively had to employ private detectives to track people down to find cases of misuse so that you could actually deny these people any future um, uh, future access to the scheme. But for my real favourite, I'm going to go back into the slight mists of time, not quite as far as Bob Crandall's invention of the scheme, but to friends and family, which in the US was, I think, pioneered by AT&T. In the UK, uh, BT bought the rights to effectively the the program. I think it was invented by a man called Ed Carter. So we actually know the originator of the scheme. This, for the younger people among you effectively meant that with your phone company or long distance provider, you could nominate, and I think it started with 10. You could nominate 10 
long distance numbers, the 10 numbers typically that you called the most or spent the most on calling. And you received a typically fairly nugatory discount of about 10% when you called any of those 10 numbers. Now, this fascinated me because it's absolute proof of behavioral economics. In other words, to an economist, um, a much more attractive proposition would simply be to reduce the cost of all calls to anybody by 10%. However, had you done that, one, it wouldn't have been nearly as exciting to the consumer, bizarrely, as engaging them and getting them to choose the 10 numbers on which they received a discount. Secondly, it would have lost its meaning as a discount almost immediately. People would have forgotten that calls were once 10% more expensive. And, you know, an across-the-board 10% discount would have basically lost any kind of behavioral motive power after about six months. Friends and family went on being engaging for years. You, you know, you'd occasionally agonize as to whether you had the optimal choice of, of 10 numbers, for example. And while it lasted, it was a brilliant, brilliant idea because it shows the difference between reduction in cost and perceived value. It also exploited, I think, a slight bias, which is that most people, most people's calling patterns kind of followed the Pareto principle in that, you know, 80% of calls were to 20% of people they called. And so most people made the vast majority of their calls to one of these 10 people. So it made them feel that, oh, in my case, I'm getting particularly good value for money because I'm saving money on so many of my calls. But we have to go back to that because it, it was an absolutely perfect test case of what I call the science of knowing what, econo what economics is wrong about. And so friends and family, although not perfect in many ways, it didn't have much in the way of recognition and so on and so forth. Uh, it was a wonderfully interesting pioneering scheme, nonetheless, for what it proved about human behavior. And by the way, I've extrapolated from that the same argument that governments should never offer tax cuts. They should instead promise a tax rebate at the end of every year. Because if you simply cut people's taxes, two years later, they've forgotten what the old tax rate was, and they have no further gratitude. Whereas a rebate paid annually would actually um, get people highly attuned to the value of tax cuts for you know, three, four, five, ten years and ongoing. It would also probably get them to accept the fact that in extreme years, 2008, for example, maybe 2023, a rebate simply wouldn't be payable, and that wouldn't be perceived in the same way as a tax rise would be. So I think it would give government quite a lot more mobility and also would probably be valuable to many consumers because a lump sum payment is different from a regular but not very exciting reduction in outgangs. Very interesting. I love both of those examples. In particular, the tax rebate scheme underscores an idea that I have around loyalty that part of what loyalty's function is, is to merchandise all the best aspects of a brand. Yeah. And by putting that tax reduction in the form of a rebate, it gives the government another opportunity to merchandise that tax, effectively that tax discount in the form of a rebate. And it, really, it, 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 it concretizes it. It's real money, in a sense. Um, and it, as I said, it's, it, this would be a much more intelligent approach. I mean, there are other really interesting things. I mean, I agree with you that, that a loyalty program... Now, we ought to, we ought to answer a, a, a bit of a question here, which is a few brand aficionados and people I respect greatly, in particular Byron Sharp, author of How Brands Grow, argues, looking at the Ehrenberg Bass data, that the most successful brands are those which have the most customers. And because they have the most customers who have that brand in their repertoire, and those people tend to buy that brand more frequently within their repertoire, they argue that loyalty is actually a mistake because you're concentrating discounts on people who would be heavy customers of yours anyway. Now, I think the loyalty industry should answer that. Now, what I would say there of Byron Sharp is that he is perhaps making the is-ought fallacy. 
in that that tends to be the pattern of expenditure in um, FMCG um, packaged goods. Okay, that doesn't mean, however, that you can't create differential value in many service industries, in particular for the people who buy from you most frequently. So I'll give you an example where I think it's a very intelligent value exchange. Okay, if you fly once a year. You know, on and there are millions of people who do that. Just as there are millions of people who never fly. Okay, the length of the check-in queue is obviously a factor, but it's not actually a deciding factor uh, in your choice of airline. It happens once a year. Going to the airport is a bit of a novelty. What the hell? It's forty minutes. It's ten minutes. Doesn't matter. If you fly once every two weeks, okay, then the length of the queue becomes absolutely critical. In fact, you know, if you spend literally, you know, um, <laughs> you can spend literally three or four years, sorry, days of your year uh, in aggregate queuing at airports, that's a problem. And so that understanding that frequent customers occasionally have a different need set to infrequent customers and having the ability to serve them differentially is, for example, really, really important. And it'd be silly to deny that. Um, Amazon Prime, okay, if you look at it that way, um, we, ought, we ought to also talk about Amazon Prime stroke, Costco stroke, uh, you know, all of those, what you might call pay once up front, save many times schemes. Yes. It's in many ways the simplest form of loyalty scheme. That also acknowledges the fact, I think, which is that if you don't have Amazon Prime, there's a limit to how, A, whether Amazon can have frequent customers, and B, there's a massive limitation on people shopping across the Amazon range. So put it simply, okay, maybe regardless of their own wealth, 100 people, let's put it another way, okay, 10 people don't mind paying a delivery cost once a month, but one person intensely minds paying a delivery cost 10 times a month. And so it makes sense to do disproportionately discount delivery costs by charging them in a different way to those people who are buying from you most frequently for two reasons. One, it, it enables them to buy from you frequently in the first place without becoming resentful. And two, it, it, it encourages them to shop the range. And we've got to remember, of course, it was introduced when people thought Amazon basically sold books. I can remember, I can remember actually, in the very early days of Amazon, when they started selling a bookshelf. And people thought this was hysterically funny and started reviewing it as if it were a book and going, you know, I found the style somewhat wooden. Now, <laughs> in days when Amazon is the everything store, okay, that seems like a ridiculous reaction. But you've got to remember, I'm old enough to remember the kind of late 90s when Amazon was just the place where you went to buy your books. And buying a CD rack from Amazon was, you know, uh, something of an anomaly. And so, no, I mean, we, we, we have to look at this and understand that in many cases, um, differential uh, uh, frequent customers either require differential treatment or appreciate differential treatment or expect it. You know, that, that, then, it aids the, that, that then aids an intelligent value exchange because there are things you can't offer to everybody. Okay, it would simply be uneconomical for an airline to allow everybody to have lounge access, and it would also render the value of the lounge somewhat meaningless. Okay, so the question is, well, you know, for whom do you differentially innovate? And you talked, you touched on the the notion of time in a couple of different places that yeah. that I think is also worth considering because your point about the airport queues, as well as the foundational proposition of Prime, which was mm. essentially removing that time gap from when UPS or FedEx or whatever courier was going to deliver your package relative to going to the physical store to go collect your package and return home. They started to blur the line as well as create certainty around, around that time. and. In my mind, the fee for Amazon Prime is analogous to what the air, what the smart airlines do in recognizing that second example, the person who flies every couple of weeks or flies every week, in that yes. they're willing to pay a premium to do business with that airline more frequently and thus 
obviate the need to sit in a queue to check in, to board, to, to retrieve their bags if they check their bags. That seems very analogous to, well, I know I can get two-day delivery or even you know now same-day delivery from, from Amazon. And part of that trade-off is if you give us a greater share of your repertoire, okay, we'll give you differential value. And so now, obviously, I think, you know, most of the Ehrenberg Bass data comes from packaged goods. Uh, there's a limit to how economical it is to offer loyalty programs for uh, individual packaged goods for obvious reasons. Yes. You know, the margins simply aren't high enough and so on and so forth. But what I do find so valuable about loyalty programs and so interesting is um, they're in very way, in many ways, the kind of Galapagos Islands of experimental economics. In that they create a parallel currency. Now, in some cases, what is interesting, and we find this in the UK, people prefer the loyalty currency to the cash equivalent. Now, that seems irrational until you realize that the currency offers them the potential for guilt-free indulgence. You feel a lesser sense because you can't use your boots advantage points to pay the gas bill or to pay the electricity bill. Okay, you feel less guilty spending your points on a bottle of Chanel number nineteen than you would do spending the cash equivalent on that thing. Okay, so you know there are all manner of psychological things going on where we quite like to be able to cookie jar our wealth so that a certain amount is reserved for treats and another amount remains for staples and essentials. You know, so what what loyalty programs reveal, I think, about and also. So the other thing that they reveal to an extraordinary extent is how capitalism is not merely a series of one-shot anonymous transactions, that ordinary human beings desire relatedness and reciprocation and recognition with the people with whom they do business, and when they do business with those people more frequently. Maybe that's not true of packaged goods purchase, okay? But it's certainly true of something like an airline or a restaurant or a hotel, that if I do differentially more business with you, I expect you to make it known to me that you're cognizant of the fact. So one thing we did, for example, when, when we worked with British Airways, was a very simple thing. And okay, there was a benefit attached to it, it was lifetime tier points. So in other words, the way tier, po tier points determine the tier, the, the status level you have in the airline uh, for the next 12 months of travel after you reach a particular tier. Now, lifetime tier points, unlike tier points, did not reset to zero at the end of the calendar year. They continued adding up. Now, ultimately, if you hit 35,000, you got gold status for life. That's pretty much unattainable to all but, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know, 20% of gold card holders at any one time. However, what it did say is that we know your lifetime value. Simple as that. Okay, it's if you like the digital technological equivalent of a restaurant maitre d greeting you by name. In other words, you're not a stranger, and that massively instills confidence in us because if we know that they know our past value, and assume therefore that our future value may be equivalent, okay, we trust them more not to let us down simply because. Um, when given the choice, they'd prefer not to lose our future revenue. And therefore, if they see us as a source of future revenue, they're much, much less likely to um, uh, make a short-term saving by disappointing us in some shape or form. And so this extent to which actually capitalism is relational, it's not purely transactional. By the way, I think, interestingly, um, we could also talk about you know, employee relations in this respect in that the relationship between employer and employee has become very transactional. Meet this target for this quarter, you get this. Okay? Very much, yeah. But at some level, and I, you know, this is my bring back the company car campaign. When companies sent you on training courses or they gave you a car or some other uh, perk, it was sending a signal that they had a long-term investment in your future and that your future interests over the medium to long term were actually aligned. And as a result, 
I think this transactional relationship, although it seems completely rational to economists, this highly transactional relationship with employees basically means that Gen Z don't stick around anywhere for two and a half years. That's not because Gen Z is psychologically totally different to any other um, previous generation. It's simply because the way employers invest in them has changed and Gen Z has noticed. Simple as that. It's a perfectly rational response to the fact that if my employer is not really invested in me, then it would be foolish of me to invest my future with this one person. Which is ironic in, in your example, because you're, what you're suggesting is, and it's actually very rational, that the yeah. brands selling to customers is mindful of their lifetime value. Yes. But, em, but employers seemingly, especially given your, your Gen Z example, seem not to have that outlook. And, you know, they look differently at the employees than they do at customers, which is a challenge. Partly a data problem, which is most data is collected and most data we use is a byproduct of data collected for reporting upwards to finance and shareholders. Okay. They favor recent aggregate snapshot data over longitudinal data. Okay. And as a result, most companies tend to operate with a, it doesn't matter whether it's 10 customers buying once or it's one customer buying 10 times. Okay. They don't really distinguish between those because once you aggregate the data, those, uh, th those distinctions disappear. Actually, one of the things I've always said is that if there's one question I'd want to know if I were running a startup of any kind or any kind of innovative product is when people buy from us, do they buy from us again? Or is there a point, by the way, this may also be the case uh, in which you want to drive frequency. Let's take online grocery shopping. There seems to be a kind of phenomenon that if you can get people to do it three times, effectively they're kind of hooked. To habit. To, to habit, yeah. And, and when you think about it, by the way, the first time you buy groceries online, it would be cheaper to crawl to Walmart over broken glass because you have to type everything in, find everything. It's not it's not aware of your favorites, your regular items. You know, some of the ways in which online stores are laid out are particularly bizarre and so on. And, you know, it's quite a tedious thing. Once you've done it five times, it becomes easier, but also it becomes somehow system two rather sorry, it becomes system one rather than system two. You know, a lot of things which, when we do them the first time, require an awful lot of cognitive effort, become progressively just easier over time. And so one very important role of loyalty is simply generating frequency in behaviors. Now, there's a lovely way of putting this. There are certain products and there are certain goods where the experience or the repeated experience of the good fundamentally changes your utility function or your preferences to such an extent that one that once you've done something four or five times, the alternative suddenly seems hopeless. Okay, now this is quite important, I think, in that, um, uh, funnily enough, writing you know, in a much more elevated topic about economics, Russ Roberts, the Stanford economist, talks about, say, having children, okay, which from the point of view of a childless couple is a completely irrational thing to do, okay? Because what do you enjoy as a childless couple? Going out, having loads of discretionary income, you know, taking drugs and going woo on your spare time. <laughs> Almost all of those things you enjoy as a childless couple are massively, Stop. massively prevented by having children. But once you have a child, your preferences, interests, utility function, what you think is important in life, changes to such a dramatic effect that actually the idea of saying, to, saying that it is irrational for a childless couple to have children is missing the point. Now, I would make the same point about I've got a Japanese toilet, okay, which cleans your bum for you, okay? Yes. Now, the point about that is no one really wants to install one, but once you have had one and you've experienced it five or six times, the idea of going back to a standard dry wipe toilet seems like a reversion to the Stone Ages. Okay, So one of the things that's important is just simple frequency, getting the same customers to get over that point where actually, I mean, by the way, it happened with mobile. We forget this because 
we, we tend to forget how difficult it is to sell most new ideas once those new ideas have become current. But there was a long period in the late 80s, early 90s, where the majority of the British population said, I don't want a mobile phone. Why would I want to make phone calls on the street, for example? What was significant was that once people got a mobile phone, virtually nobody went back. And by the way, I think this is important. Um, uh, to understanding markets, because I think that's also true to about a 95% level with electric cars. It isn't the speed of adoption of electric cars we should look at. The real question to look at is, once you go electric, does anybody actually revert to petroleum? Yeah, very I, much so. I think what we're, seeing is, what we're seeing is that people don't. So stickiness, actually, which is a subset of loyalty, is, I think, becoming a more and more important thing to understand. Well, it, it it does tie it ties back in my mind to two things. Number one, this this notion that we already touched on, which is habit. Um, but it it also seems as though it just reflects the way we build relationships with other people. The difference in 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 in, in the context of what we're talking about being it's the relationships that we form with brands, which when you peel back and think about what creates loyalty, it's that mutual exchange, the reciprocity, and the idea that if I'm the customer and you're the brand, we need to be loyal to each other. And that's what sort of creates yes. the virtuous circle going forward, where it's easier, more profitable. And and to borrow that line from the film, you can't quit. Like, you know, when they say, I can't quit you, that's that you you sort of strive to achieve that mode of relationship between a customer and a brand or between an employee and an employer. So, so there's a wonderful experiment in this about the, the, the extent to which we actually have a desire for uh, reciprocity uh, in our business dealings, which is why I think procurement sometimes gets it wrong, by the way, um, because if if I know that after a three-year relationship uh, with a client, the entire um, relationship will be set to zero, and I have to go and pitch again against three other people, okay, uh, as if the past four years had never happened, okay, I actually have no incentive to differentially invest in that relationship. Because there are many, many things I can do in an ongoing relationship which can't be charged for, okay? Let, let's say, okay, I've got a client and I've noticed something really, really interesting and I discover a business that they might find very interesting and I put them in touch with that business, okay? It would be fairly crass to invoice them for that in proportion to its value, okay? The reason I would do it very willingly is I would expect the value to be recognized at some unquantifiable level in the longevity of the relationship, okay? In other words, if I'm disproportionately helpful to you, I would expect you to be disproportionately loath, simply put me on a beauty parade as if nothing had ever happened. And yet procurement sometimes makes that relatedness um, impossible. And they create, therefore, visible and quantifiable savings but at the price of unquantifiable costs, in particular opportunity costs. It's always much easier to quantify savings than it is to quantify opportunity costs. But there is an opportunity cost in making a relationship transactional, which is no one has an incentive to innovate, no one has an incentive to go the extra mile. Everything becomes how much did that cost, how much do I charge for it? And actually, let's say you're an advertising agency, the most valuable things you can do are probably things that you can't explicitly charge for. You yeah, they're coming up with spontaneous coming up with spontaneous work. I can't come up with work unasked for and then ask you to pay for it. Okay. The reason I do it is because it's an investment in the relationship. And now there's a great economic experiment about this, which is that in Marseille, Marseille, boats come in, they sell the fish to fish merchants. The fish merchants sell the fish to Restaurants, for example, hotels. Okay. Now, that is in a sense economically inefficient because you have an intermediary. And they tried to replace it with a system where all the fish came in and was sold at auction to the end consumer or the end buyer, cutting out the middlemen. 
Now, obviously, not surprisingly, the fish merchants hated this idea because it left them in no future role. What they didn't expect is that the buyers hated it as well because their ability to engage in relational capitalism, to engage in anything tacit or implicit with the fish merchant had been destroyed by the auction process, and therefore the relationship had basically become transactional and the product had become commodified. Now, what they valued about the fish merchant was the fact that the fish merchant, they knew that if they were disproportionately loyal to fish merchant A, he would go, I, I actually found this fantastic slice of, now I'm going to get the fish right. Um, I don't know, what, what would it be in the Mediterranean? I don't know, goodness knows what, swordfish, okay? Disgusting fish in my experience, but never mind, okay? Um, and I actually kept it back for you, for example. You know, there, there, were all, there was all this kind of implicit barter going on alongside the cash transaction. When we buy frequently from someone, the nature of the relationship implicitly changes in a way that economists don't notice, but normal human beings do. I'll give you a perfect example of this. If you read letters of outrage to utilities, okay, they start with the phrase, um, I have been a customer of yours for X years. Imagine my surprise when. Now, you know, to someone who's just really the finance director, the length of tenure is irrelevant to your degree of outrage, but it isn't, okay? Because over time, I have sort of played fair by you, and I expect you to give me the benefit of doubt in return. And to some extent, you could say that brands are, you know, at some level, the benefit of the doubt. That's what a brand gives you, Okay. And if you remove this, if you remove this, you're destroying in many ways brand value. And I, I, I just find this so interesting because it's such an interesting area where actually capitalism as it evolved in Homo sapiens, okay, and capitalism as it is presented by Homo economicus or in economic models are very, very different. You know, I mean, the urge to punish someone, for example, who's treated you unfairly, uh, is you know irrational in many cases from an economic standpoint. But it's completely rational from a game theoretic standpoint of if you basically don't play to the implicit rules of our relationship, um, there's a cost of defection. Absolutely, and I think relative to the example you used before, this notion of soft benefits. And the relationship that's constructed or it's deconstructed mm -hmm. when you take out the intermediary literally removes or figuratively removes value from the transacting and makes it purely transactional versus having the relationship component to it. Well, I have to confess that when I fly with an airline whose loyalty program I don't belong to or with whom I've flown very, very sporadically in the past. I'm just 30% more nervous than the day before I fly. You know, you know, if if something goes slightly wrong, will they actually, you know, take care of me? Will they bother? Because to them I could be just some random backpacker. You know, I'm not a frequent flyer. Yes. I'm just some random Joe. And consequently, you know, if there's a massive snowfall affected and there's only one seat left on the flight out, it ain't gonna go to me. Well, I think that's the idea of loyalty go, yeah. being recipro reciprocal. And, mm. and you've built trust in the airline that you're most loyal to. You trust yes. that they have your back. And it's that sort of risk mitigation confidence that you get. And it's, I mean, to bar look at, you know, an iconic Ogilvy client, American Express, that, you know, their whole campaign around powerful backing almost explicitly gets to that. If, if you had to ask me for the most beautiful loyalty campaign of all time, which was invented by someone at Ogilvy, in fact, I think, it's the idea of member since on the American Express card. Because there is no explicit benefit. There is a small security benefit to a, a member since, which is that if, you, if you're obviously a 27-year-old and you turn up with a card that says member since 85, uh, the the merchant has a reasonable suspicion that you may have stolen the card, okay? Or Unless fabricated the it on your own. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. Fabricate, exactly. 
<laughs> but aside from that, okay, what is interesting is I spoke to someone at American Express, and every now and then they make a mistake. And they will issue people with new replacement cards. And instead of saying, I think I'm member since 95, instead of saying member since 95, it will say member since 23. Something like half, or in some cases, more than half of those people will contact American Express and demand that the original date is reinstated on their card. It's recognition. And it simply is, it's absolutely now, that idea, possibly actually young marketers are less acutely aware of this than we are when we get to middle age. Because when we get to middle age, there are a significant number of businesses with whom we have done business repeatedly and, you know, uh, and, and hopefully without, you know, without difficulty over a couple of decades. And therefore, the expectation becomes all the greater. But it is it, it is fascinating this area because the the number of what you might, as I mentioned, with friends and family, you know, a fifteen percent discount across the board would have been forgotten about, uh, particularly at a time of falling long distance prices. Anyway, that would have been forgotten about within six months. Okay, and incidentally, no one would have noticed it. Whereas friends and family allowed you to itemize a saving on the bill and make the person feel that they, through their efforts, had achieved it. You know, it's a classic case of there's a little bit of labor illusion involved in that, similar to just add an egg. You know, the famous marketing case where nobody wanted Betty Crocker instant cake mix until you added a degree of extra effort to its preparation. You know, and so, you know, there was that wonderful aspect to friends and family, which is that. You felt this was actually an earned reward, which therefore made it perceived much more highly in terms of its value than a reward that was merely conferred. Not to mention the opportunity cost. If you were to leave AT&T, mm. you're going to spend the 15% to talk to your other friends, the people you want to talk talk with the most. Right. Oh, no, no, no. Actually, of course, there's, there's a wonderful thing, which is that if you can get people to invest effort into a relationship, they tend to perceive that as a sunk cost, which is why we leave our banks so infrequently in part. Um, that, that's undoubtedly true that, you know, uh, that if we see the relationship we have as the uh, the product of lots and lots of past interactions in aggregate, and we think that if we move to someone new, it's a terribly awful thing to say, okay. But um, you know, I don't I can't speak for everybody here, but um, you know, one slightly tedious thing about having an extramarital affair must be that you you have to familiarize <laughs> someone else with all your quirks and peculiarities <laughs> starting from scratch, which must be, you know, whatever the other whatever the other perks must be unbelievably tiresome. You know, but um, quite, it's, it's the owner, even, quite the onerous task to uh, yeah, yeah, to do, right? Uh, uh, you know, and so yeah, there undoubtedly is a kind of sunk cost effect to these things, um, uh, which I think you know, which I think can also be valuable. But there's so much, so much concentrated psychology in loyalty programs, from as I said, the simplest like friends and family and, and Amazon Prime to really elaborate programs, uh, airlines, I suppose, hotels. Uh, tend to lead the field there, but there's there's scope actually. There's scope for far more people to do an Amazon Prime than currently do. One fashion retailer, probably better not name them actually, but one prominent fashion retailer in the UK found that when they introduced a kind of equivalent of Amazon Prime for fifteen pounds a month for unlimited next day delivery, the average number of purchases per customer per year went from one to five. Now that's a really big deal. You know, and that's that's share price stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So that 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 brings me to a couple of things that are sort of current it, within loyalty, which is one moving it to be less transactional. You know, loyalty is viewed in these hyper transactional terms, in part because there's so much homogeneity among programs. Right? There aren't yes. the and and so how do we rekindle and I'll sort of borrow a phrase from from alchemy how do we rekindle the magic in loyalty uh, i think i think there's scope for magic in the sense that you can create value out of nowhere i mean the american express member since thing um there used to be a beautiful one by the way 
<laughs> which was nobody else noticed it. I seem to be the only person who noticed it, which is if you subscribe to Reader's Digest, the January edition of Reader's Digest had one little Pegasus on the spine. The February one had two. The March one had three. The April one had four. All the way through to December, which had 12, which meant that if you had a complete collection of Reader's Digest, they formed an attractive zigzag pattern on your shelf. Whereas if you actually let it lapse for three months, the whole thing was destroyed. Now, I don't know who came up with that, but um, I have That's to say it's, a little bit of, it's, rather, it's rather brilliant, isn't it? Um, totally brilliant. But, but, but quite a lot of this, by the way, is actually understanding genuinely what makes us human. And I'll give you an example of, you know, a very, very human response of mine. Um, back in the day when I used to smoke, I used to walk um, down to the tube station um, from my flat in London to catch the underground to work. Most days, perhaps not every day, but I'd stop in to buy a newspaper or a packet of cigarettes or a box of matches or something of the kind from this one shop, family shop. And on day about 247, I realized I'd left my wallet at home and I only had 50 pence in my pocket, which wasn't enough for the tube. Might have been 90 pence. So I said to the person in the shop, can I just borrow 20p uh, for the tube and then I'll pay you back on my way home? And they said, no. Okay. Never went to that shop ever again. It it, it is worth noting that loyalty is a double-edged sword because it's in some ways it's, it gains you disproportionate reward from people whom you treat well, but disproportionate punishment from people if you violate its basic principles. And it was considerable inconvenience to me not to go to that shop again, but my view was, you know, swivel, basically. You know, if you won't lend me 20, I mean, they could have given me 20p after what I'd spent there, but they, they didn't even lend it to me. Okay, and I was so horrified by that complete failure to recognize my past custom that I I basically boycotted the place. So it is a double edged sword. And consumers, of course, like it because it gives them some degree of power because they're implicitly wielding not just a single transaction, which you can afford to ignore. They're wielding what you might call, you know, an expected lifetime value. Now, a consumer's lifetime value is a much stronger sword to wield over when you have asymmetry of information, asymmetry of power in all kinds of ways. That's a much, much stronger sword to wield uh, than a single transaction, which doesn't amount to anything. It's interesting. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about airlines and and the, the notion of, of tier qualification miles and 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 the like. And We've seen this with the airlines after in, in, in light of sort of grandfathering everybody during yes. COVID when they couldn't travel, essentially raising the stakes, raising the qualification threshold, and a lot of people falling out, which also creates this whole side industry of status match, right? Where where all of a sudden people and and with things like name, image, and likeness coming to the fore and this higher level of consciousness about our value and the value of our data, it seems like that is is an opportunity where consumers will be further empowered because they can better quantify their value. And if somebody doesn't like it, they can go and get somebody else to see what their value is, which they do in the airline industry with this notion of status match. I'm top tier in BA. I'm going to go to America. American's not the right yes, example. I, I, got, I got off a top tier in, I think, Air Portugal by dint of being top tier in BA, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Um, so, and, um, I mean, it doesn't significantly impact, you know, because obviously not that many of my flights are via Portugal. Um, but um, it, it, it's undoubtedly, I mean, it is interesting because at some level, without that reassurance, would you be unwilling to transact at all? In other words, would I fly a lot less if I didn't have the confidence of knowing that there's someone there who has my back? So it works in, it, it works in both directions. It's rather, there's almost a kind of mutually assured destruction element of, of, of symmetry to it. <laughs> Um, uh, which is liked. the opposite of the virtuous circle, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 yes, no. I mean, 
it's um, uh, it is so interesting though because I think um, there's a very useful model for it, by the way, which is from a man called David Rock, who's a New Zealander, but I think a neuroscientist currently living in New York, and his big five models, big five model of things that humans care care about that um, economics and actually by, by dint of it many businesses don't properly understand he calls it scarf and scarf is an acronym which stands for status certainty autonomy relatedness or i would call it almost reciprocality but you get the point and fairness now um it is a very, very healthy thing for a marketer to evaluate the extent to which their brand delivers on or fails to deliver on those five. I don't, I don't think it's an exhaustive list, by the way. I mean, there are other things I'd consider. But the question of fairness is interesting. So one thing I find extraordinary, and I, I genuinely don't, you know, well, I'll give you an example of this, okay? Um, if you are booked on a flight, which you booked very cheaply, and for reasons beyond your control, you miss that flight, okay? Now, you have a history, just to be clear of this, you have a history of taking flights pretty frequently, turning up when you're damn well supposed to, but on flight number 27, something goes wrong, there's a massive traffic jam, your incoming flight is delayed, circumstances beyond your control means you miss the flight. Is it fair that not only are you made to pay the full fare to travel on the subsequent flight, not the discounted fare you booked in advance, but your the payment for the the original flight is totally void. You see now, or for that matter, I'll give you another example where loyalty matters. Amazon is ex extremely generous if you have an item that that fails to turn up. And I've had one or two items that fail to turn up. I contact Amazon; they either give me a refund or they send out a replacement immediately. On two of these occasions. Uh, the goods have actually arrived subsequently, so I end up with two of them. I'm being a good citizen and also just not wishing to, you know, generally arouse bad karma. I contact Amazon and say, I've now got both of these things. Can I send one of them back or pay for it? Because I can give it as a present to someone else. And they say, don't bother. Now, just to be clear, they do that to me and they do it to you, I imagine, because we've also bought a hell of a lot of things which we haven't returned. Okay, they can't afford to do that to a first-time customer. Okay, you simply can't do that because that first-time customer could be trying it on. Similarly, you can't be generous to someone who's missed their first ever flight. But I think we do expect a level of give and take and benefit of the doubt if we miss our twenty-seventh flight. It's rather like there's a very, very big difference, okay, between being late for work on your first day at work and being <laughs> late for work on day 205, okay? Trust. Okay, you know, you know, and Bayesian stuff. Okay, we basically know this guy's reliable, but, you know, and shit happens is the, is the reaction to being late today. If you're late on your first day, that's why anybody sensible who's got their first day at work gets up two hours early and actually arrives before the bloody office opens because it's simply not worth the downside risk and doubt that would be created. And so, you know, so you look at these things. I mean, one of the things I found extraordinary, okay, and, I, you know, there's a hotel I quite like, and I quite like to stay in outside Cannes for the, the Cannes Advertising Festival. And they have a policy, which is that um, uh, three weeks, four weeks before your stay, if you cancel, you void the entire cost of the stay. Right. Okay, hold on a second. Right. I mean, anybody could have circumstances, you know, a relative being taken ill. Da, 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 da. I mean, God, anything can happen, which makes it impossible for me to know until two weeks beforehand that I can't go. Now, wiping out the first night's stay, yeah, if you wipe out the whole stay, hold on. I now have, I, I'm terrified of booking that hotel for more than two nights. Okay. So you've now created a ludicrous system where, um, I would never book that hotel for six nights because the fear of basically pissing away six nights of French hotel um, because of circumstances beyond my control, so as a result, it's impossible for me to book it. Now, you know, that, that's the kind of thing where I, I, I genuinely look at companies that do this kind of thing and go, uh, you know, does your finance director just run the whole show? Because no one who has the slightest ounce of human empathy would come up with a ruling like that. It's nuts. Well, that's just don't, it. don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, it's 
just you know, this is this is fundamentally unreasonable as a, a you know as a, as a as a proposition. Human reason. And, um, and so scarf, I think, is useful. I mean, you know, the status question is important. Um, it's also a great thing, which I was quoted, the um, Mark Fox, when he was head of Starbucks in the UK, said to me, he said, it's a very important thing, he said. Um, and he said, of all these sort of weird marketing meetings I've gone to, he said, I always came away with one great sentence. It doesn't only matter what people think of brands. It also matters what people think brands think of them. And and if you think about it, we always ask the question, what do you think of this brand? You know, is it, no, 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 what can it do? But actually, there's a there's a completely important a secondary question, which is, you know, how does it actually think of you? Does it value you? Does it want you to come back? Does it see you as a source of, you know, future revenue potential, whatever it is? Or is it just, well, if you want to come here and spend some money, feel free? And, you know, I, you know, I mean, at its simplest, um, you know, the best loyalty program in the world is actually are those run by very small businesses with their best customers. You know, a good it it probably needs a little bit of margin to make it work. Okay, so butchers are probably better at it than people in you know in a lower margin business. But actually, you know, the, the very best the very best small businesses, of course, do this instinctively because they yeah. understand they they have both longitudinal and uh, and snapshot data on who their customers are. They know them and they show loyalty to them. And those customers yeah. know that they, that they, and they know that, that yeah. they're getting loyalty in return. Rory, we could keep talking all day. And I know uh, there's a, there's so much more that you have to say. And I am fortunate like the other people that are going to be attending the loyalty summit CXM in Zurich next month they're going to get to see you and hear you and from you in person uh so thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and uh, i'll look forward to seeing you next month in switzerland see you in switzerland wonderful can't wait and thank you very much indeed this show is sponsored by the wise marketeer the world's most popular source of loyalty marketing news, insights, and research. The Wise Marketeer also offers loyalty marketing training through its Loyalty Academy, which has already certified over 500 executives in 38 countries as certified loyalty marketing professionals. For more information, check out thewisemarketeer.com at loyaltyacademy.org. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like us to send you the latest shows each week, simply sign up for the Let's Talk Loyalty newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and we'll send our best episodes straight to your inbox. And don't forget that you can follow Let's Talk Loyalty on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, we'd love for you to share your feedback and reviews. Thanks again for supporting the show.